1948, a coalition of Southern governors met in Florida to develop a strategy to bypass integration of public medical schools and maintain the separate but equal status quo of segregation. Their plan involved taking over Meharry Medical College and diverting African-American medical students from across the South to this historically African-American institution in Nashville, Tennessee. In 2013, this lesser-known chapter in American medical and civil rights history was exposed in an American Journal of Medicine article whose co-authors included the former governor of Mississippi and the 10th president and CEO of Meharry Medical College, Dr. Wayne J. Riley. Dr. Riley has dedicated his career to eliminating health disparities and expanding opportunities for underrepresented minorities to enter the health professions. Now a clinical professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and adjunct professor of healthcare management at Owen Graduate School of Medicine at Vanderbilt, Dr. Riley is the current president-elect of the American College of Physicians. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, ASN Executive Director Todd Ibrahim speaks with Dr. Riley about how the Southern Governor's Plan affected the African-American medical community and the challenges of developing a more representative healthcare workforce. Well, Dr. Riley, thank you for joining us for today's discussion. Thank you, Todd. I'm curious if we just sort of start in the beginning of this remarkable story. What happened when the Southern Governors met in 1948? Well, what happened was is uh, what we, our co-authors and I have described as a little-known sort of nugget of medical history, particularly as it relates to diversifying the health professions. And if you think back to the uh, 1940s and 50s, it was an era of uh, rigid segregation in terms of professional schools and higher education for African Americans, and nowhere more particular so than those African Americans who wanted to pursue medicine as a career. Out of the 75 medical schools that were in existence at that time, probably only produced 12 graduates. And so it was left to the two predominantly African American medical schools, Howard University College of Medicine in Washington and Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, which I was honored to lead as president for seven years, to really provide the bulk of the uh, education pipeline for African-American physicians. The trouble that encountered these institutions were they, they were what we would refer to as comparatively resource-challenged or comparatively under-resourced institutions, and particularly so Meharry. Uh, Meharry had had several near-death experiences throughout its uh, early years and into the 40s and 50s just due to finances. So you could see how the convergence of sort of the the interest of the Southern governors to preserve the the rigid segregation, segregated classes in their professional schools sort of intersected with the Harry Medical College's perennial financial plight. And so as a result, the Southern governors came up with a very uh, creative but backdoor way to preserve the old ways, but yet still find a way to educate uh, African-American physicians and uh, dentists and nurses. So perhaps we could use your father as an example. Do you mind just describing his experience with the medical education system? Absolutely, Todd. Interesting story. And this is how Rich DeSaggio and I came up with the idea for the paper was I, I related to Rich that my late father, who was a surgeon, attended the University of Michigan. He was the son of two blue-collar uh, workers in New Orleans where I grew up. And um, he, they, they were very successful in getting him out of the Deep South for, for a college. And University of Michigan, as you know, is a public Ivy League institution. Uh, he left uh, New Orleans in 1952 to matriculate at Michigan and 
did well, majored in zoology, and applied back at Tulane and LSU uh, in his hometown of New Orleans to go to medical school. His application was denied due to the fact that he uh, that they were not taking quote unquote Negro students, and he was further advised that if he were to seek or gain and or gain admittance to Mahari Medical College in Nashville, that there was a state support for him through some scholarships uh, to defray the cost of his medical education. So my my late father was a direct beneficiary of the remnant of the uh, scholarship program or the compact uh, vis-a-vis the Southern Regional Education Board. And so he received a, a scholarship from the SR, SREB all four years of his matriculation at Meharry, uh, pre-Civil Rights Act of 1964, obviously, to uh, become a physician. What's your best sense of the number of African Americans who were prevented from pursuing a career in medicine as a result of this compact? Well, you know, it's it's somewhat incalculable, Todd, because we knew that there were several hundred black students, particularly in the South, who aspired to, to pursue medicine as a career, but it was just sort of saying, it, you know, landing on the moon uh, in terms of trying to gain admittance to some of the southern state-supported medical schools, whether it's LSU in New Orleans or the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill or the Medical College of Georgia. It, it was just almost impossible. So you often, I often wonder about how many aborted medical careers there, there are out there among 75- to 80-year-old uh, men and women who just could not have the opportunity that others had to pursue medicine, dentistry, and, and nursing. Like I said, it's incalculable, but this sort of interesting history punctuates the fact that you cannot take for granted the access to higher education opportunity and that we live through a very interesting time when a creative maneuver by some very skillful politicians uh, you know, came to, to pass. But it, it begs the question, uh, what if? And how did the, the Southern governor's plan, what led to its demise ultimately? Well, it, I think it faced some vociferous opposition from uh, national black leaders, in particular the NAACP. Uh, there was a very distinguished physician, uh, W. Montague Cobb, who was a uh, sort of a leading physician, a black physician voice of the 30s and 40s, who really opined quite strenuously that this uh, proposed Southern Governor's Compact was little more than sort of a Trojan horse deal to prevent the expansion of uh, educational opportunities for African Americans at state-supported schools. He also made an economic argument, Todd, and that was that, look, the southern states of the, of the country were not deep-pocketed enough to sort of support two systems of higher education, both an African-American system of higher education plus a, a mainline system of higher education, plus use state resources to send the well-trained African-American students out of their home states. So he hit a two-pronged sort of, sort of pushback. It was very compelling. There was a mini uprising among several prominent Meharry alumni, particularly those from the West Coast, and it then began to run into sort of political and atmospheric problems. Uh, as we recount in the paper, it even reached the floor of the United States Senate when Senator uh, Wayne Morse of Oregon uh, opined against the Southern Compact as, as not being consistent with uh, the ideals of the country. And at the time, were the as we moved beyond the 75 medical schools and we started adding newer medical schools, 
were those schools, particularly the, I guess the state-sponsored schools, more open to having African-American students? No, not really. Not to any appreciable numbers until, again, the late 60s. And again, the catalyst for this is the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that President uh, Johnson signed. There had been obviously some Supreme Court cases, the Gaines case in Missouri in the 30s, I believe, and uh, Sweat versus Painter in Texas. Herman Sweat sued the University of Texas to gain admittance to the University of Texas Law School. So there was all this jurisprudence that really spooked the Southern governors that I think that they kind of knew in their heart of hearts, look, we cannot, you know, we're, we, it's going to be difficult for us to fight these constitutional fronts, so let's figure out a way to sort of backdoor maneuver uh, so that we can never be accused of denying um, medical education to African-American students in our states by acquiring a uh, an African-American medical school. So from your personal experience, what were some of the challenges you faced in becoming a physician? Well, you know, by the time I came along, uh, things were much better, although, again, history is revealing. Uh, even some of the southern states uh, did not admit black students until, in any appreciable numbers until the 70s. And a, an interesting sidelight of history is, although Meharry Medical College, again, uh, predominantly African-American, founded in 1876, admitted its first white students in 1957. We admitted two Jewish students who were barred from gaining admittance to medical and dental school because of the rigid Jewish quota that existed uh, across the country, particularly on the East Coast. And I think that's a, a, another piece, a nugget of history, that Meharry Medical College has been an integrated uh, multicultural institution uh, since two years before I was born, uh, ten years or so before many of the other southern states admitted black students, uh, for example, Vanderbilt Medical School did not admit its first black student until 1966. So uh, Meharry was a full decade uh, before many of the other schools in the South in admitting students of, uh, of you know, students of, of a different color. But again, that really did not take hold, Todd, until I'd say the 70s when you had an appreciable number of African-American students who were able to attend the highly regarded state medical schools and nursing programs and dental programs across the South. And today, while there has been an increase over the last 20 years or so of the number of African-American students in U.S. medical schools, um, the numbers are still not reflective of the society. What do you think some of the barriers are? Well, exactly. For example, uh, you know, I'm still stunned when I see this statistic, but in 1960, when my father graduated from Meharry, it was estimated that 3%, 3 3 to 4% of all the physicians in the country were African American. In 2013, it's roughly 5 to 6%. We've gone up very little. And a lot of it has to do with K-12 education, partly access to higher education. The increasing cost of higher education has been a deterrent for many young men and women to pursue careers in health professions. Uh, Health professions training is long, it's arduous, and it's expensive. And uh, regrettably, sometimes good students get turned off from pursuing uh, medicine because of those three factors. So, again, there's lots of good organizations working on this. The Sullivan Alliance to Diversify the Health Professions, led by former Secretary, uh, HHS Secretary Lou Sullivan, has done some great work. Uh, the AAMC has done some great work in terms of trying to diversify the health professions, but it's still a struggle. And so I think that we can never take for granted 
the fact that we have much better access to higher education and medical education for all groups in the country, but it's still very tough sled, and, in, and as I tell our students at both at Vanderbilt and Meharry, it is a privilege to study medicine and dentistry in this society and to enter the health profession such as nursing because uh, it is still uh, quite an arduous and, and difficult path. So it would be difficult for a group like ASN, I think, to influence more underrepresented minorities to apply and be accepted into medical school, but it seems like a group like ASN could do a lot to both raise awareness about some of the challenges in terms of diversifying the workforce and perhaps developing programs to support underrepresented minorities in the medical education continuum. If you agree with that concept, what's something a group like ASN could do that would be truly meaningful and make a difference? Well, I think it's it's appropriate for ASN to wade into this, this area, uh, particularly from a health disparity point of view. Uh, we know that chronic kidney disease and rates of dialysis and other uh, kidney maladies are higher incidence and prevalence in African-American and minority and low-income communities. So just in terms of, you know, the, the, the day business of the ASN and its members, uh, the nephrologists all over the country who are taking care of patients, they know the disparities that exist in terms of access to dialysis and early detection and treatment of chronic kidney disease. So to the extent that ASN, you know, partners with other organizations, that ASN gets out to the medical schools and exposes minority students to the joy and passion and reward of serving as an internist and nephrologist in communities of need, that will go a long way. Uh, I'm a firm believer that, uh, you know, these problems appear to be intractable, but a little bit day by day, month by month, year by year, uh, makes a difference. And again, the, the great subspecialty of nephrology is, is very critical to improving the health of African-American and minority communities. So I, I think that ASN uh, can and should and must play a role. Dr. Riley, thank you for joining us for today's discussion. Thank you, Todd. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.